0: So let me ask you guys a question to start us out today. Have you ever been in the middle of something? It could be, I don't know, a chore you're doing. Uh, Lord knows this has happened to me uh, plenty of times uh, when I'm trying, <laughs> when I'm cutting the grass or, or weed eating outside or doing something. Um, or it can be anything, really, just any kind of task that you're you're doing, where you think that the way that you're going about it is not having the intended effect that you wanted. And you think to yourself, my God, there's got to be a better way of doing this, because this is a losing battle. <laughs> I remember I was helping uh, clean up um, after... Here in Harlan County, we have a big festival every summer, the Pokes Out Festival. And uh, I was working it last year, and uh, at the end of the the last night... Everybody stays on um, till like three or four in the morning to to get everything cleaned up downtown. You know, it's right in the middle of downtown, so you gotta have a pretty extensive uh, cleanup operation. Uh, and there had been a confetti cannon that went off um, from the concert stage into where the crowd was, and we were trying to sweep up all the little bits of confetti, and uh, it was just not. We were not getting anywhere very fast, <laughs> and. <laughs> Someone said, We got to find something else because this is a losing battle. And it was. And eventually we'd figured out something to get all the confetti picked up. I don't even remember what we did. But I wonder if you all have ever been in a situation like that. You know, again, it could be a chore and like doing manual work or something, or it could be something else where you think this is not having the effect that I intended, or even this is not having the very best effect possible. And my lord, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And I've been thinking about that uh, in kind of putting together this week's episode for a few reasons that I'll get into here in a minute. But also because uh, I saw a video yesterday um, of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from the great state of Georgia. And I don't say that ironically. Georgia really is a great state, not always with the best elected officials. Um, There's exceptions to that, Reverend Warnock being one of them. But um, anyway, I'm putting the horse before the cart here. Um, and she was at some kind of conference. I don't even know where she was, but um, she, and I thought about uh, looping in the segment of her speech that I'm talking about here so that you all can hear her words for yourself. And for one, I don't want to do that to you guys. Uh, You all mean too much to me uh, for me to play that audio. Number two, uh, I don't know if I would be able to just take that one part of the speech, I don't know where I could download the audio from, and I just don't care enough about what she said to go through too much work in trying to, to uh, get the audio like that. And the third reason, and these are all pretty valid reasons, but this one may be the most so, because everything that she said in this part of the speech that I saw was, to put it as kindly as I can, not only misleading and misinformed, uh, but just mean-spirited. In the speech, she is... um, I'll try to summarize it as best I can. She is essentially grouping together three presidents. FDR, Lyndon Johnson, and Joe Biden. She uh, argued that what... Uh, Biden has attempted to do through his uh, big social spending plans Build Back Better, which I covered, I think, in the first episode of season two, back when it was still a possibility of becoming law. The American Rescue Plan, uh, other efforts to invest in uh, child care or, or education or infrastructure. And she's essentially... In this video, in this speech, as far as I can tell, making the argument that Biden was carrying uh, forward a vast socialist conspiracy that FDR started in the 1930s, that LBJ continued on in the 1960s, uh, and that Biden was attempting to bring to fruition nowadays with his social spending plans and and things like that. Uh, For those who follow on Twitter, I retweeted Um, Well, There's one way that you can go hear what she said for yourself if you so choose. Uh, I I retweeted uh, this particular part of the speech that I'm talking about here on on Twitter and added a bit of my own commentary in that post, Uh, but I just can't express how much disdain appears to be in uh, her voice, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for uh, investing in education for uh, providing health care, providing jobs, um, combating poverty, ending poverty uh, for, for rural and urban folks too. I, I just, it, it, I can't begin to describe to you how much this confused me. And, it, you know, again, I don't think that she's very much a master of sarcasm. And this is coming from somebody who uh, doesn't always get sarcasm myself, but um, she seems to have a real disdain in her voice for these kinds of programs that, you know, first of we first of all we're not perfect by any measure. Neither the New Deal or the Great Society were perfect. Neither FDR or LBJ were perfect. You know, in the past I've probably uh, postured myself as a bit of a Roosevelt apologist. You know, saying that uh, he he. Wasn't as imperfect as other people have been, and you know, I've matured in that, and I've um, grown in that, and and you know, of course, he wasn't perfect as as an individual person, and the New Deal wasn't perfect either. It didn't do everything that it should have to uh, address disparities in condition because of race or because of gender. Um, we can't we can't gloss over that. We can't paper over it, and and the same can be said of the Great Society too. It had a host of its own problems. But again, you know, as I've brought this quote up quite a bit in past episodes, you know, FDR said at the beginning of the Depression, it's common to take a method and try it. If it doesn't work, admit it and try something else. But above all, try something. And that was something. The New Deal, the Great Society, they tried something to provide health care to folks who didn't have it, provide jobs to people who were out of work, provide support to people who couldn't work, like the elderly. And, uh, and uh, uh, orphans and and widows and the disabled. And, my Lord, you know, it didn't do everything it should have, but it did quite a lot of good to help folks achieve a better standard of living. Here in Appalachian, Kentucky, across the region, and across the country, both the New Deal and the Great Society did so much to improve (laughs) the lives of people who needed help. And here is a congresswoman of the United States uh, saying that, it was all implying, at least in this is how I understood it, that it's all one big socialist conspiracy that, uh, you know, FDR and LBJ and Biden are all socialists who who want to completely um, destroy American civilization or whatever kind of crap that she said in that speech. Again, I retweeted um, this Segment of her speech that I'm talking about here on Twitter. So if you follow the podcast on Twitter, you know it's it's right there. It was just yesterday that I saw this, uh, and there's probably quite a few ways that you could find it yourself. Uh, people with uh, bigger uh, and more far-reaching microphones than mine have uh, highlighted it too. So um, you probably won't take much effort to find it for yourself if you're so inclined. Uh, again, I would include it here, but uh, you know, for one, I wouldn't want to put you all through here in this crap. Uh, but it's just so mind-boggling to me. In a way, this brings me back to um, at the top when I said, have you all ever you know, tried something and said, you know, this ain't working, I gotta try something else. And that not only relates to uh, this kind of <laughs> rant that I have for you all today, not only to the speech that, that Marjorie Taylor Greene gave, but to the subject of today's episode. Right now, the United States is the wealthiest country, to my knowledge, in the history of the world. We have an overall net worth of hundred, almost $146 trillion, with a T, GDP of almost $25.5 trillion, and we've been the richest country in the world for over 60 years. And yet, how much of that wealth do most people see in the United States? I'm not just talking about eastern Kentucky and Appalachia um you know as a region or states within that region or individuals within the region i'm talking about across the country how much of that wealth do people see and and this is an important point because you know if you just take a company like amazon or microsoft apple bit you know these are Just giants within the technology industry, giants within the U.S. economy who, uh, you know, I, I don't know off the top of my head the number of jobs that they collectively provide, but I'd say it's quite a bit. And they probably account for quite a bit of our net value of our GDP. And we have to ask, would they have all of that money? Would those companies be worth as much as they are without the input of workers? I don't think so. And I would be interested to hear the perspective of somebody who thinks that yeah, they'd have they'd be that valuable without their workers. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. That's a hard case to make. But you know, you can have a warehouse full of the technology needed to assemble all of your uh, Apple devices, all of your uh, Microsoft, you know, PCs and things and and um uh, You know, all the warehouses and and equipment needed to ship things with Amazon. But if you don't have people who are actually doing that work, where's, how can you, there's no value that's created. There's no wealth that's created. It's workers themselves who give value and worth and wealth to an economy. And yet, we have some of the worst income and wealth inequality anywhere in the world in this country. You know, a September twenty seventeen study by the Federal Reserve, and this was six years ago, found that the top one percent owned almost forty percent of the country's wealth in twenty sixteen. Almost forty percent to the top one percent. At the same time, almost thirty eight million people in America live in poverty. More than one out of every ten. And that's just by using the federal definition of the poverty line, which um, I just finished a conversation with uh, Matthew Algio, who wrote a, a great book on Bobby Kennedy's trip to eastern Kentucky. And we kind of get into this a little bit in that conversation of how, you know, the, the definition of what counts as living in poverty is so antiquated, is so outdated and, you know. There are people who, you know, because they don't fall within the poverty definition set by the U.S. government, they don't have access to benefits and services that could help make their life better. And that's a whole different um, can of worms. But just by the, the outdated definition that we have, almost 40 million people in this country are living in poverty. Number one cause of bankruptcy is uh, medical debt. We're the only industrial country in the world that doesn't provide health care to every person is human right. And, my God, something, we have got to change how we do things because this is just not working. I don't know if I'd say it's not having the uh, intended effect. You know, certainly there are people who advocate for our current system of uh, how we structure our economy who would say, yes, the the goal should be to create prosperity for everybody. Uh, I'm sure there are people who sincerely believe that, but I'd... Wager that there are just as many, if not more, people who know that the way that we structure our economy does not create uh, prosperity for everybody, but there may be a few who are okay with that kind of disparity, with that kind of inequality, with the fact that great wealth, unimaginable wealth exists side by side in the same country as soul-crushing poverty. And there are a million reasons why I would argue it is the way that it is. We have to look at the fact that we don't have very strong union participation, that laws have been systematically enacted at the state and the federal level to take away the effectiveness of trade and labor unions in, in advocating for the, the workers that they are supposed to represent. We have a minimum wage that if you worked on our minimum wage of seven twenty five an hour, if you worked two jobs paying that wage, there's not a single place in the country where you could afford rent nowhere if you work two jobs on 725 an hour we have an outdated minimum wage we have absolutely no social safety net for people who uh, are in need of of unemployment assistance or or uh, nutrition or things like that there's so many hoops that you have to jump through to be able to qualify for these programs and even then they're not as effective at helping to alleviate the needs of people we have just a, an insanely convoluted healthcare system that is geared towards profit because we're a capitalist economy and, and I could be here for hours telling you guys why I think that we're in such the mess that we are. Because objectively, if you look at it objectively, when you have uh, 40 million people living in poverty, when you have, uh, by an estimate from six years ago, 40% of the economy owned by the top 1%, when you have people living paycheck to paycheck, when I think it's like 60% of Americans don't have uh, $400 in the bank for an emergency, you cannot, in my view, objectively look at that situation and say, everything's fine. I don't know how you could do it. Maybe you can. I don't know how. But this is not working, and something has got to be done to change it. You can call it whatever you want. Uh, I'm so sick of labels being attached to ideas and those labels being politicized. Often they're oversimplified and misrepresented to the point where it's like woke, right? Everything that uh, the right side of the political aisle doesn't like nowadays, they call it woke, where they might take something they don't like say, oh, well, that's socialism, because I don't like it. I know that there are a lot of people who are not that way, but they don't seem to have the biggest microphones on that side of the aisle. Again, you can call it what you want, but we got to change things. we got to change how we do things in this country. We have to change how we structure our economy so that it does create prosperity for the people who give the economy value in the first place. Where it's better for workers... Where we, lift, where we help workers and the poor and the marginalized and the the discarded lift themselves to the kind of standard of living that they deserve to have. Where nobody has to be afraid of going into debt. Nobody has to be afraid of being kicked out of their apartment or losing their house. Nobody has to be afraid that they won't put food on the table or clothes on their backs or send their kids to school. That's the kind of economy and the kind of society that we need to create, one that is free of fear. I don't have all the answers for how we do it. I have an idea of how we can get started. I think that workers should have more direct control over their workplaces and thereby have more direct control over their day-to-day lives. I think that we need to drastically reevaluate how we collect taxes in this country to the point where, you know, we have billion-dollar corporations that don't pay a nickel in, in corporate taxes or, or income taxes. We have an economy that is structured to send more and more money at the top and leave less and less in terms of money, in terms of services at the bottom for everybody else. And friends, something has got to change. Something has got to change. I don't know exactly how we do it, but something's got to. And Marjorie Taylor Greene can call it whatever she wants. She can call it socialism. She can call it communism. I am willing to bet that she probably could not give you a consistent and accurate definition of what either communism or socialism are. And in that respect, she's probably in the same boat with most of the people who are in charge of the Republican Party nowadays, and a few in the Democratic Party. I won't let them off the hook either. But we've got to have a different frame of thinking if we're going to make sure that nobody has to be afraid of Losing everything of, of being without, of being hungry, of being cold and unhoused. We're better than that. Fundamentally, human beings are better than leaving the least of these out in the cold. And we've got to do better. And we can do better. One way that we can do better is by taking the vast kind of wealth that we have in this country and investing it in the right things. If we invested in making sure that people from every zip code, from every walk of life have the best kind of starting point that they can have in terms of education, in terms of housing and health care, I I think that we will begin to see a real transformation in the kind of of standard of living that people in this country don't have right now but that they deserve and that they should have. And one really good way of doing that is by investing in child care. Now, across the country, there are so many problems with providing access to child care, with making child care affordable, and uh, with paying the folks that work in that uh, part of the economy to make sure that we are able to get good, qualified people to to do that kind of work, that important work. And there are a lot of problems with how we go about doing that uh, across the country, but particularly here in Kentucky. And that is the subject of the conversation that I had with my guest today, Dustin Pugel, Uh, Dustin is uh, with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. They are a nonpartisan research and advocacy center uh, here in Kentucky, and uh, I'll let Dustin kind of get into the details of what they do and and how their work goes about and what he does within the organization. Uh, They're just doing great work and making sure that folks are informed about the really important issues facing Kentucky uh, uh, as a state. And I uh, ran across a piece that he had wrote that was published in the Lexington Herald-Leader and some other places uh, on the really bleak situation in terms of uh, childcare access here in Kentucky. Uh, it's a really informative article. I, I'll provide a link in the show notes that you all will be able to read it if you, if you want to read that before uh, listening uh, any further to kind of uh, get the context for Dustin and, and, and my discussion uh, it's a, a quick read, but it's really informative and really well written, and Dustin and I talk about the state of child care in terms of who has access to it across the state uh, geographically and, and economically, but also the investments that have been made in it with uh, the, the onset of the pandemic, for instance, and other uh, federal resources that have been made available that have really helped to uh, shore up child care here in Kentucky, and we talk about how that might change here in the next little bit and that the legislators here in Kentucky will have a chance to uh, help make sure that it does not uh, collapse as an industry and to shore it up and make it stronger, make it more available and more affordable. And uh, we tie all this together with discussing how child care is something that when we invest in it, we see the real positive impact it can have on people in giving parents a place that they can send their kids uh, – uh, when they have to go to work, giving kids a good environment to uh, uh, have their formative years in. It, it's just there's a net positive in every kind of way that you can imagine in investing in child care. It's a remain to be seen whether or not the legislature here in Kentucky will make the kinds of investments that it should. And Dustin and I discussed some possible ways that they could, uh, they could make investments in child care that would be really beneficial. Uh, but at the end of the day... It's one of those things where if we rethink where we put our resources, if we put them towards things like child care and, and education in general and healthcare in general, you know, we'll start on the path to creating the kind of better standard of living that everybody in this country deserves and that everybody should have. So I was really glad to have Dustin on the show to discuss this really important topic. And I think that you all will find this a very uh, informative and an interesting conversation. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for all that you did to support the podcast. Uh, I'm really glad to be going right along with season five. We've got some really great interviews and other content coming up. So uh, be sure to stay tuned for that. And thank you once again for tuning in today. So let's get into it. I've been following along with uh, your your think tank, Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, for a while, and I'm really glad that uh, you guys are out here doing the work of making sure that folks stay informed uh, about these important issues, child care being one of them, uh, but several others too. And uh, speaking of child care, you wrote a very good piece that I know appeared in the Herald Leader and a few other papers regionally across the state uh, about the Uh, worrying trends in childcare uh, for working families in Kentucky. This is a topic I haven't really covered on the show and I've been meaning to for a while. So uh, thank you for being here and for talking about this topic. And uh, I'd love to give you the first few minutes to introduce yourself uh, and uh, just say whatever you'd like to get us started in our uh, discussion. Please go right ahead.
1: Yeah, no problem. Well, thanks again for, for having me on here and for paying attention to this issue. I think it's definitely an important one and one that we're going to hear a lot about in Frankfurt in the coming months and um, into the session next year. Um, yeah. So like you said, I'm with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, research and advocacy group. Uh, we're based out of Berea, but we got folks all over the state. Uh, I'm in Lexington. we got folks in Louisville midway and, and so forth. And, um, you know, we try to focus on state-based policies that primarily help middle and low income folks, uh, with an eye toward things like economic justice and racial justice. And, um, it's really important to us that we provide, uh, you know, policy that really helps folks thrive. Uh, and that's, that's kind of our, um, our focus and where our values are. Um, we're, uh, nonpartisan. So we are also very glad to work with uh, all kinds of folks um, to try and bring these policy solutions to bear. So that's kind of who we are. And, and my role there is as the policy director. So I kind of oversee our economic security work, uh, which includes things like jobs and labor, health care, uh, food assistance, and then um, child care, obviously. And that's kind of where we're we're coming at this from
0: right and uh, you you guys have been very involved in uh, you know in producing pieces like yours this, this article that just kind of summarizes and and explains explains the uh particulars of this point in in policy in the state uh and I, I was curious do you all coordinate effort as well as you can I, I know there must be some rules seeing as you're a nonprofit and a nonpartisan but Uh, Do you work with legislators in Frankfurt or maybe local legislators in Kentucky, uh, in Louisville or Lexington or other places to translate the research that you do into action?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so when I say we're a research and advocacy group, you know, our bread and butter is research and analysis. We we look at the data, we look at state trends, we look at what's going on in, in other parts of the country and try and provide evidence based solutions. Um, on the advocacy side of things, you know, we work with other organizations and coalition to try and, uh, you know, provide a better outcome for, for public policy. So that means working with state legislators primarily, but but state agency staff as well to try and provide feedback on, on different uh, proposals to, to potentially propose new ideas um, and just generally, you know, be a part of the democratic process. Um, we are a C three, so we don't affiliate with any particular party. We don't deal with elections. We don't um, get involved with you know party specific uh, issues. But um, but like I said, we're we're happy to work with legislators from all different perspectives um, as long as they're focused on trying to provide better outcomes for the state.
0: Right. Right. And child care is certainly one uh, area where that kind of advocacy and uh, action is, is needed uh, as you detail in your piece. And uh, I'd love to I think this would be a good time to kind of get into the details of, of what you wrote. And um, m- maybe for those, uh, I'll, I'll provide a link to where uh, folks can go to read it in, in the show notes. So maybe they'll get a chance to read it beforehand. But uh, for those who haven't yet read it or, or uh, maybe aren't aware that this is an issue at all. Um, I think it's easier for folks who maybe are not, uh, who don't have children who aren't in the workforce to not really see the, uh, real effects of this issue. And so uh, I'd love for you to maybe walk us through, uh, the details of the childcare situation in Kentucky, maybe pulling some from the piece that you wrote, uh, to kind of get us started in talking about this specific policy area.
1: Yeah. So, you know, childcare, I think is often an underlooked at, um, industry in the state. And, and, you know, there, there are reasons for that, but it really, I've heard it said that it's the industry that supports all other industries because a large chunk of the workforce are parents, right? A big chunk of those are parents of young kids. So when we talk about childcare, we're talking about really a a keystone industry that ensures that uh, working parents, especially working moms can continue their careers can, can further their, uh, education can uh, really try and uh, improve their family's economic situation in general. Uh, and so uh, that is, that is true. It's also true that childcare is the springboard for children's development. Right. We know, and it's well documented that uh, children's development is really critical from ages zero to three. It's um, when a lot of neural pathways are being developed, it's when a lot of social emotional uh, behaviors are being ingrained it's when academics are starting to blossom uh, so these are all like incredibly important years for kids and uh, research from the 60s and 70s have shown that high quality uh, child care and education can have huge outcomes not only immediately for those kids but well into adulthood things like uh, lower divorce rates uh, lower rates of anxiety and depression higher earnings more likely a higher likelihood of Graduating college, even so, uh, the, it's a really important aspect for the kids themselves too. And it by itself is an important industry in the state. Uh, folks may not realize, but we employ three times as many people in the child care industry as we do in all of coal mining in Kentucky. Wow! So it is a it is a very meaningful part of the workforce in general. So you know, it has implications for the broader economy. It has implications for the uh, quality of life for our next generation, and it has implications as a large chunk of our workforce uh, to begin with. The problem is that uh, we don't invest in childcare the way we do in things like K through 12 education, for example, um, that, is a, that has become a really big problem because what happens is families who uh, have young children are often at the beginning of their careers toward the lowest end of their earnings lifetime. But at the highest end of what their expenses are, you know, it's like right, right. when you're taking out mortgage, it's right. When you're paying childcare expenses, all these other things. So it's really difficult to afford uh, for, for families at the same time, it's also difficult to find. So half of childcare, half of kids in Kentucky live in what's called a childcare desert, where there are no available childcare spots, or there's three times as many kids as there are of, of childcare spots. Uh, and that means that, you know, it's really difficult to get your kids to a childcare center and then get to work because you have to drive out of your area to find right. one if you can find one to begin with. And the third issue is that it's really difficult to pay your staff well. Um, so the median wage in Kentucky right now is about $20 an hour. It means half of Kentuckians are in less than that. The average wage for a childcare worker in Kentucky is under $12 an hour. Gosh. So we're talking at about like the bottom end of the earning spectrum as far as, you know, people who are caring for our kids at a really critical stage in their life. And the reason it's really difficult to pay well in child care is that we have ratios in child care centers. And these ratios are important. They need to stay the way they are. But basically, it just means that, you know, for toddler or I'm sorry, for infants, you have to have one teacher per six infants, which to me seems crazy. There are many infants at the same time. So even that seems, uh, you know, difficult to deal with uh, up to uh, one teacher per 14 preschoolers. So that again, that's a really important safety measure that we have in place. It it shouldn't change, but it just means that it's difficult for centers to be able to pay their staff well while keeping tuition low, which we already know it tuition is high for a lot of families. It, it costs about the same to send your kid to child care as it does to send them to Kentucky State University. Right. So, uh, you know, what we have is essentially this really, really critical industry that's in what you might consider a classic market failure where there's high demand for it, uh, but it's almost impossible to afford it, first of all, uh, and it's almost impossible to pay your staff well. So what that means is, we've had a huge decline in childcare centers over the last 10 years. Right, it's we've like lost, almost
0: 50%, right?
1: That's right, we've lost almost half of them uh, over the last several years. And the one thing that helped prevent that from really going into a nosedive was a massive federal investment during the pandemic, which seems counterintuitive, right? Cause like this is right when childcare centers were right. closing and shouldn't, you know, to, for, for COVID reasons and you know workers were, were leaving, and it was really difficult. Uh, but but actually, the federal government investing over a billion dollars, actually right at a, around a billion dollars, uh, made a huge difference in preventing that. But all that money is going away, right? Uh, in the coming months, and so we can talk a little more about that if you want to. But when I think about childcare, these are all the things that are swimming around in my head. You know, we've got an availability problem, we have an affordability problem, we have a quality problem, we have all this federal money that's sort of propped it up but that's all about to go away. And that's kind of what we're facing here over the coming year.
0: Sure. And, uh, kind of working backwards from that, there will be an opportunity in the coming session for the industry of child care to be more supported by the state government in, especially since we've had, you know, a big surpluses in our budget, we have the money to do it. Uh, I, I think the governor in his budget proposal called for, uh, increased funding for childcare, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so this coming session, which I I just had a class on Kentucky government for my senior year. And so if my professor hears this, he will be disappointed that I won't know, but off the top of my head. But the next legislative session is supposed to start very soon. So that will be an opportunity to kind of uh, not only prop it up, but also to invigorate it more to where it'll be more sustainable.
1: That's right. So uh, going back to those federal dollars uh uh, particularly the last round in 2021 through the American Rescue Plan Act. Right. Out of that billion dollars, we got about $760 million. It's a huge chunk, and it was meant to last through in, in two separate buckets through the end of this year and then through next September. So the first bucket and the larger of the two was for quarterly sustainability payments uh, made directly to child care centers which we've never done before. So what's been happening over the last several couple of years is that the state has been writing checks to the tune of an average of $33,000 a quarter to childcare centers um, based off the number of kids that they have, first of all. And then second of all, they create a tiered system so that they will pay you more if you create a higher starting wage for your workforce. Oh, okay. It's been really great, right? I mean, we we know that we have a really low-paid childcare workforce, so that's really helped to to pull wages higher. Um, And so that pot of money, though, goes away at the end of this year. So by December, that last quarterly payment will go out, and we're not going to do that anymore. Um, That money's been incredibly valuable to childcare centers, and it's really helped them do a lot of things, primarily keep tuition down, um, as well as be able to provide raises for their staff to, to keep them around, because churn or, or turnover in child care workers, as you might imagine, is really, really high. It's hard, hard to keep folks around with low wages there. Um, the second pot of money was an increase to the federal source of money that we use for our child care assistance program. So the federal government basically said, hey, we already give you money to help low income folks afford child care. Here's a bunch more. Do with it what you want. So we use that money to do things like raise the income eligibility limit for that program to increase reimbursement rates so that child care centers want to take folks with that assistance to begin with, Right. We allow child care workers to bring their kids to, to work and, and so that they don't have to worry about uh, where they're going to put them uh, to provide grants for child care centers to improve their their physical locations. I know my the child care center that my three-year-old goes to was able to add a uh, a new door in the back of the building where the parking lot was so that child care workers didn't have to walk all the way in the street around right. the building to get in. But but they've used it for other things, too, um, and a whole host of other things. So that pot of money is going away next September. Combined, that represents about three hundred million dollars a year, um, which to put that in perspective, the gen- out of our general fund, our state dollars, we only invest about million dollars a year. So it is a very large amount of money that we've been able to invest in our childcare system. And when all that goes away, you know, the question is what are childcare centers going to do? Are they going to raise tuition so that even fewer folks can afford it? Are they going to close classrooms because they can't afford to keep teachers around? Are they going to close their doors entirely like they have been doing for the last decade? Um, So we really are facing a huge, huge federal fiscal cliff that, we're not prepared to face. The General Assembly will come back in January of next year. Um, They're gonna write a two-year budget. And it's at that point that they will have to make a decision. Are they going to help support this industry that has supported all the other industries, that improves the development of our kids, that is a vital part of our workforce, Um, or are they gonna let it languish on the vine and let that money disappear and and, um, pray for the best? My hope, and and it seems like they're aware that they got to do something Uh, and how much they're going to do is is a question, especially while at the same time, they seem incredibly bent on cutting our income tax, which is our single largest source of revenue. So I think they've got a way. What do you want to do? Do you want to give away tax dollars primarily to wealthy people, or do you want to support our childcare industry, which supports the rest of the economy? And in my mind, that's the... The two options that they have before them.
0: No, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, it'll be something to follow along with, I'm sure. You, you mentioned also the uh, kind of three pronged uh, uh, problems that the industry is facing uh, of uh, quantity and availability, along with being able to to fund it with these federal dollars that are about to go away. Uh, in in your view, what are some Immediate steps that can be taken, or maybe um, uh, first solutions that can be pursued to help shore up those other issues with with childcare provision in Kentucky.
1: Yeah, so one of the biggest uh, problems that we mentioned earlier is is availability, just right. being able to find a childcare center nearby, and that is primarily an issue in rural parts of the state. Absolutely. Which, you know, you know, Appalachian podcast, per- perfect example.
0: <laughs> right, right. Uh,
1: you know, if you look at um, the Center for American Progress's map that shows where child care deserts are, it's in far western Kentucky, and you guessed it, far eastern Kentucky. Right. Um, now, there are a lot of options for helping fill in those gaps that don't involve, you know, a, a million dollar building with a bunch of staff. Uh, one thing that the state and federal governments have both been pushing for and that I hear a lot of talk about in, in the legislature are family-based child care centers. So home-based child care centers where a person uses their basement as, or, or their, their home or whatever uh, to convert it to a regulated child care center that, where you have a cap. You can only have about 12 kids in that, in that space, but it's a much lower bar to being able to provide that child care. Um, you are eligible after a time to receive kids on child care assistance, which a lot of low income areas, also rural areas, you know, are. Right. Um, so, you know, that is one option that I think we can move forward with. And there's still some money actually out of that federal pot to help uh, individuals who want to open up a family-based childcare center in their home with uh, initial startup costs, as well as some technical assistance. Because I know, A lot of people probably thinking like, "Whoa, man, that's a highly regulated industry. That's kind of creepy. I don't know. You know, the state has actually created manuals like a how to guide for setting this up. They've got people who will talk to you on a phone, you know, like real life human beings who can walk you through some of these questions. So that's one thing that the state's doing to try and immediately deal with this problem. Um, And I think it's a really good idea. Another a uh, pilot project that is happening right now uh, through a bill a couple years ago called House Bill 499 is uh, the state has proposed a uh, basically an experiment to see if helping to offset the cost of employer benefits to employees for child care uh, will pay off. So um, up to 50% of the cost of child care benefits that employers give to their workers can be supplemented with state dollars. Um, now you have to apply for that. It's, it's a little bit cumbersome I've heard, um, but it it is an option and it's, it'll be interesting to see if that works as well. But in terms of what the overall need is, I think that's like a $15 million pilot project out of a $300 million hole. It's not going to fix it by itself. So I think there's going to have to be uh, more than just one, one attempt, uh, to solve this problem quickly.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, probably, uh, I don't know if you call it a short term or a long term solution, but, uh, you know, part of this certainly has to be making sure that childcare workers are paid uh, uh, a much better wage in their uh, as you as you detailed earlier than they receive right now. And I know that that's been you know, this kind of plays into the conversation that's been going on for the past couple of years, you know, through the pandemic about a labor shortage. And, you know, as a lot of folks would argue, it's not really a labor shortage. It's a shortage of jobs that are paying well and that provide good benefits and that people realize that they can have if they hold out for them. And so, you know, it seems to me that that's uh, a solution that is definitely worth pursuing. But, you know, it is uh, left to be seen whether the uh, uh, General Assembly with its current makeup will will pursue that. Uh, But, you know, that certainly has to be part of the conversation as well.
1: Yeah, and I, I think really we're not going to fix this problem until we take public investment seriously in it. Right. Um, you know, if we compare K through twelve education, for example, there is a forty two hundred dollar per pupil guarantee um, made up of state and local dollars. If you just look at state dollars, it's twenty six hundred dollars uh, per pupil uh, in child care. If you take the forty and a half million dollars that we have in general funds and you divide that by the 300,000 kids under six years old, it's like 150 bucks. Right. So, you know, we're, we're not even in the same universe when it comes to investing in our earliest ages in the state. Uh, and so I, I don't know if the General Assembly will ever get to a uh, sort of seek formula orientation toward, you know, early childcare and education, um, but I think that sort of illustrates the gap that we have between how seriously we take K through 12 versus how seriously we take zero through five. Um, and I, I that's that's going to be something I hope, uh, you know, legislators think about uh, and they really weigh when it comes to budgeting next year.
0: I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that point up because as we've also seen over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of, uh, need and uh, signs that we do need to reevaluate not only in Kentucky but across the country how we do invest in these kinds of initiatives to provide for people and to make sure that people have uh, especially kids have a good baseline from which to start as they start to mature you know from from pre-k to k through 12 to wherever they go after that and Uh, you know, a a lot of people would term it maybe human infrastructure or social infrastructure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've had a lot of discussions about the need to invest in physical infrastructure. That's something that has here in Kentucky and elsewhere, a lot of bipartisan appeal. Uh, And, you know, it's just something that uh, and I'm sure you agree with this, too. It's something that I hope that legislators and people who are making these decisions about funding and budgeting uh, take more seriously the need to really, really invest in human infrastructure, too, because it's just as valuable as the, uh, the Brent Spence Bridge or uh, repairing roads here in East Kentucky or, or uh, anywhere else across the state in that you're making sure that people have the tools and the kind of uh, opportunities early on in life, you know regardless of their zip code or regardless of their income to really develop and flourish in a way that not only they can live to their fullest potential, but when we're all able to do that, everybody is made better because of it. It's something that there's there's an endless positive return on an investment in something like childcare, I guess is the the upshot of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Our greatest resource are our people, right? Right. And I've heard the care economy described as any sort of sector that helps develop or preserve human capacity. So if we really care about our greatest resources, we're going to really invest in the care economy. Things like education, childcare, direct Care workers and in nursing homes and home and community-based services, um, healthcare in general. You know, these are all the things that really help ensure that our people are taken care of. And you know, a lot of ink has been spilled on things like sports betting and uh, you know, large um, industrial developments and and things like that. Nothing wrong with those things, but if that's where we spend all of our energy and attention where, you know, we actually have our most critical resource, our people sort of being hung out to dry, you know, that's a problem. And, right. I, and I really hope that we, like you said, really focus on in human infrastructure, our, our care economy. What what are we doing for um, our people uh, in in their most critical stage of, stage of development? And that's, that's childcare up and down. I mean, I really think that's an incredibly important Thing to remember, and and again, you know, we we uh, rightfully talk about how much our coal miners have sacrificed for the state. Uh, we talk about how important they they are as as people and as workers. No no denying that, but at the same time, we have three times as many childcare workers, uh, right. and they're not pulling coal out of the ground; they're taking care of our kids. So let's let's think about them, you know, with with some of the level of intensity and and sort of mystique as we give our, um, you know, coal miners and, and others, other types of workers in the state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's uh, I think I think that's a good rem- reminder that the way that we treat the workers, workers in general, but also those who do provide such important services, you know the the provision and the service that a coal miner gives is just the same as a child worker in the sense of their general importance to how we are able to just live in a community where our kids are taken care of and where we can have good jobs, safe jobs and well-paying jobs. And, you know, it's all a part of that, that bigger discussion about this. And, you know, another point that I uh, uh, you brought up that I want to expand on is that, you know, as coal mining has declined, there's a general acceptance that it won't be as, booming of an industry as it was in the past. And as more folks who used to work in that industry, or not even that, as more folks go into the workforce who don't have that as an option always, um, you know, a lot of them are going into jobs in the care economy. A lot of them are working in mm-hmm. uh, nursing homes or uh, could work in child care centers if more of them were available, uh, or working in similar positions like that. And, you know, when you are able to give folks an option that they're able to have a meaningful job like that, where you're having a real, noticeable impact on your community and on people that you know, or the kids of people that you know, when you're paid well for it, when you get good benefits for it, uh, you know, that's just one of the many things that we could do. To you know, there's been a lot of talk of revitalizing the economy in Eastern Kentucky, and you know, this seems to me to be a really uh, apparent and a doable way of at least starting that up. And uh, you know, it's uh, I think an important thing. That would be important, I think, for legislators to remember, especially as more of them talk about the need. Like, we got to revitalize the economy in Eastern Kentucky. Well, we got to have a conversation about the many different ways that we could do it. You know, it's not just one solution staring at us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a, a great example of that is, you know, we, we've we we used to think of coal as sort of a, a tent pole industry, right? Sort right. of the one industry that held up all the other ones around it. And so right. that kind of went away and a lot of other industries dried up. Uh, one of the biggest investments we've ever made in Eastern Kentucky is Medicaid expansion. Yes. Uh, which was a huge influx of federal dollars. And if you look at, you know, just as a case study, if you look at hazard, for example, you know, hazard used to be a booming coal town, uh, a lot of activity there, is sort of in the, the bowl, the downtown area right. related to that. When that went away, downtown sort of, you know, dried up a little bit. So, uh, at the same time when we expanded Medicaid, uh, folks will now talk about Hospital Hill, where all this influx of largely federal dollars meant that providers could expand their services. You know, it went from a clinic to a hospital to an SUD clinic to, you know, several other ambulatory care services. And now Hospital Hill is a huge booming economic center. And that has become, in a way, a sort of like a tentpole industry, right? It really has ensured that there are good jobs that pay well that can go and spend money in the local economy and that bounces around in the area. And it has helped really bring bring some things back. So, uh, you know, if we think about what public investment can do in an area, um, it really creates a stable foundation from which private industry can thrive. And I think, you know, childcare should be seen in that same vein, And if we do take it seriously and we do make a significant investment in it, I think childcare could really help, um, you know, generally speaking, the the rest of the economy. I mentioned a couple of times, it's the industry that supports all other industries. That's true in terms of being able to watch other kids, other workers, children, but that also could be, we could imagine it as being true uh, for the workers themselves, being able to spend their money in their local economies and let that that money ripple out and create new industries and, um, uh, support other folks around it. So, you know, I, I think we just need to have a better imagination about what public investment does in a, in an area, um, especially in an area with so many childcare deserts, like Eastern right. Kentucky. Um, and we can, we can do better.
0: You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, well, Dustin, Thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's been a great talking to you and, and, you know, we've had a great discussion, I think on this important topic. Um, I'd love to give you these next few minutes to say anything that you'd like to round us out, anything that you'd like to leave uh, listeners with uh, anything at all that you'd like to say, go right ahead. The floor is yours. And again, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, no, I think you, you've you covered all the right bases. Uh, if I were going to say anything else, I'd say, you know, sessions coming up in January, everybody has a state representative and a state senator. If this is something you care about, um, if you if you know a kid in child care, if you know a child care worker, um, uh, if you just care about what it means to the broader economy, have a conversation with your legislator. They, they really do appreciate hearing from their constituents. Um, and the stories that you share really do matter. I mean, I I can share all the data and show all the charts and and talk about all these issues, um, and and that's important because we need evidence based policy. But it's really the stories, in particular uh, the stories of our legislators' constituents, that really make it stick. Um, so I would just encourage folks, if you're gonna if you're gonna care about this, um, you know, have a conversation with your legislator.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Uh, well, Dustin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on the show. You're welcome again at any time uh, that you'd like to be, you know, as with, with the session coming up, especially where this will be a longer session with budgeting. I'm sure there'll be more uh, policy discussions to have. I'd love to have you on the show again to have those discussions as well. And again, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, the important work that you're doing. And thank you for your time today.
1: Yeah. Thank you, TJ. Appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for listening again this week. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And thank you as well for all that you do to support the podcast, whether you listen, follow on social media, give an encouraging word, whatever you do and however you do it to support the podcast. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to join us again next time for another episode of Appalachian Firesides. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform that you Listen on, give me your thoughts on what you like, what you would change, how I could do better. Just let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your all's thoughts. If you like that background music that you're listening to, that is a piece called In the Sweet By-and-By by a great artist named Zachariah Hickman. Be sure to check them out on YouTube. And don't forget to follow the podcast on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on all that's going on. I hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of Appalachian Firesides. But until then, be well, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.